Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Brian. We had a lot of people this week that were going to be out of town for various things. Had a, one of our families, their daughter was getting married, and other people going out on various trips. And we had 15 people calling this morning sick. And uh, some of you are feeling a little under the weather, but I sure appreciate you coming anyway. Brian even texted me last night and says, hey, I'm feeling kind of bad. You might be having to uh, sing as well. It's like, no, come anyway. <laughs> Whatever you got's better than what I can muster up. So appreciate him uh, rubbing some tough on it. That's what I said to do, and uh, he has done that. <laughs> and it showed up this morning. <laughs> so appreciate that. Well, we, uh, we're in the middle of a series. We're doing the Explore God series. It's, it's uh, major questions that society kind of has and that we might have every now and then as well uh, about Christianity, about God, about who Jesus is. And uh, last week, just to review quickly, we looked at uh, is Christianity too narrow? If you remember, it's one of the accusations that the world has against Christianity is that Christians always think that their way is the only way and that that is narrow-minded and that they need to be more open. We need to be more open, more accepting of other religions, that many ways could get to God. Uh, many people believe that God is kind of like in the center of a wheel and all spokes lead there eventually, no matter what you believe. And so we looked at, looked at the Word of God. We looked at Jesus' own words. We looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The truth is uh, that Jesus himself lets us know that the, the gate, the entrance to heaven is extremely narrow. And uh, we as Christians, when we say this, though, the world will often accuse us of being narrow-minded, but we are not. We're actually presenting what God has presented of himself. All along, he gives us the whole story from cover to cover of your Bible that he would send this Messiah. He would send this one Savior into the world. Uh, God the Son takes on flesh, the incarnation. He becomes Jesus Christ. He lives a perfect, sinless life. He dies for the sins of all believers on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. will be the final judge over all mankind. So it is him we have to face in the end. So the Bible presents one Savior, one way. We even looked at this last week. The way is so narrow, it's only about two feet wide. That is, it is as wide as a man's shoulders, you might say, because it is Jesus. It is Him, the God-man who dies on the cross, and it is through Him that we enter into heaven. There is no other way. Any other way is over here in the wide gate that leads to the wide uh, road that leads to destruction, eternity in hell. We looked at John fourteen six, where Jesus says, you can't get, can't get any clearer than this. Jesus says, I am the way, not one of many, choose whichever one you want. But He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is crystal clear. Uh, he is the way. So all other paths, all other religions. It is not just me, Trey Talley, saying this. Or you when you're at work. Or you in your neighborhood saying, as you talk to others, saying that Jesus is the only way. But that Jesus himself says, I am the way. So all other ways would put you on the path of destruction. Separation from God. He says, I am the truth. Means all other religions, all other ways to get to God are not the truth. We call that a lie. Uh, he says, I am the life. Uh, meaning all other ways lead to what the Bible calls eternal death, eternal separation from the blessings of God. Then he goes on to say at the end of this verse, no one comes to the Father 
except through me. So he clarifies it for us. How many people will get to heaven some other way, some other method, some other direction besides through Jesus Christ? Uh, No one. Zero, nada, zilch. There are absolutely none that get to heaven any other way except through him. We are at enmity, the Bible says. We are, we, are, we are objects of his wrath because we've sinned against God. How do we get rid of this wrath? How do we get rid of our sin? What can we give God? There's nothing. But so God provides the one and only Savior for us. It is God the Son. It is Jesus Christ. So is Christianity too narrow? Absolutely not. It is as narrow as God has made it to be. He has provided one Savior. So the question should not be, why is there only one way to get to God? Instead, it should be more of a statement of, wow, there is actually a way to get to God, that we can be at peace with God, we can be rescued, we can be saved, our sins can be forgiven. God has provided that Savior. Yes, he has. All right, so let's continue on to our next uh, message. That's just a quick review of last week. And I want to tie that in to today's message. So I did a little bit bigger of a review than I usually do. But uh, today's message is... Is Jesus really God? And obviously this ties in to last week's message on uh, is Christianity too narrow because it is as narrow as God has announced it to be that he would send one Savior. It is only through that Savior we can get to him. But also if you add to the fact that Jesus himself is not just a man, that he is also God, that the very God who created us is now on earth with us, who is, who is saying these things, then he has every right, he has all authority to say, I am the way, and that we should believe him. So we're going to look at this question today. Is Jesus really God? And uh, this might be something you've thought of before. Hopefully, indeed, it is. But there are many cults, many false religions as well, Uh, that basically they all deny this fact that Jesus was, Jesus is God. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, if you're familiar with them, a group that says Jesus was, did exist, but that he was a creation of God, that he himself was not God. Uh, The Mormons say that Jesus was, did indeed exist, but that he was not God. The Mormon religion believes in an infinite number of gods, countless. They can't even add them up. There's no way to know how many gods there actually are and how many other planets with gods. And their goal is to become a god of their own planet. So, but even in their system, they do not allow Jesus to be a god. They say that he was the first creation of the god of this planet. But there's many other gods, but Jesus is not the god, a god at all. So that's the, what the Mormon religion would say. They would say, yes, he exists. He, did, he was real, but he's not God. Universalists uh, say Jesus was a good moral teacher, but that's all he was. He was a man. Even Muslims believe that Jesus did exist, that he was a prophet, but they deny that he was God. Now, even more bizarre are that there are many so-called Christians, uh, people who attend church, who would say the very same thing. We actually have many, many people that sitting, are sitting in church around the nation right now <coughs> who would line up with one of these cults and saying that Jesus is not God. And how can that be? Uh, well, obviously, we have uh, an opinion, or they would have an opinion that does not line up with the Word of God. This is not just a small theological divide where some of us can say that Jesus is God, some of us can say he's just a man, and all get along. This is huge. Your very salvation is at stake here. This is absolutely critical that we come to the conclusion that Jesus is truly God. 
You might have heard of his name before, C.S. Lewis. His name got even more famous uh, through Hollywood when they produced the Narnicles of Chronicles of Narnia. Thank you. I was like, that does not sound right. The Chronicles of Narnia. There you go. And uh, that, that was a book originally written by C.S. Lewis. But before he wrote in, in such a way, he also wrote uh, on the issues that dealt with defending Christianity, apologetics, and, and how to defend your faith. And one of his famous arguments is that every person has to line up Jesus in one of these titles. That you either have to say that he is Lord, he is God, or that he is a liar, or that he is a lunatic. So three L's, you can remember these, all right? So C.S. Lewis said, Jesus claimed to be God. So you either have to agree that he is God, or if he's not, then you would have to say that he is a liar. Because he claimed to be God. And if you don't claim that he is a liar, but yet you see in the word that he still claims to be God, you would have to say that he's a madman, that he, he's, he's delusional, that he is a lunatic. So that every human has to come to one of those conclusions. You can't just say that Jesus is a good man. You can't just say that he was a nice teacher. He was a nice guy. Because he claimed to be God. So you either have to say that, yes, he is God, he is Lord, or he was a liar, or that he is an absolute lunatic. And this is what every person has to come to if you look at the claims of God's Word. All right, well, let's look at, we're going to look at several passages today where Jesus uh, truly and clearly claims to be God. Uh, We're going to look at next week also what angels say about Jesus. Do they say that he is God? Demons, one of the greatest witnesses to who Jesus is, actually comes from the demons he encounters. We're going to look at what God the Father says as well, witnesses to his life and the apostles, what they say about him also, just building evidence what the Bible presents of who Jesus is. Is he really God? All right, so let's look at today. Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 56 and 58. And uh, some of the passages, as usual, will be up here on the screen, but feel free to look some of them up as well. And in this passage, we see where Jesus is once again facing off with the Pharisees. And in John chapter 8, he's in a dialogue, he's in a heated discussion with him. They're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to, to trick Jesus, if you could trick God, but obviously they can't. But they're always trying to get him. All right, and, and, and so in John chapter 8, verse 56 and through 58, we see something really interesting happen. All right, just a couple of verses here. I'm going to read to you kind of the, the end of this argument that they're having. Jesus says, Your father Abraham, speaking to the Pharisees who were Jewish, who were of the Israelite nation, so they were descendants genetically of Abraham. So he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. This is Jesus speaking, and Abraham existed many, 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 many years ago. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And look what they do after Jesus makes this statement. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What has gotten the Pharisees so mad with this statement that Jesus makes that they are now going to attempt? They are not just picking up stones 
to, to, to damage him slightly or to hurt him a little bit, a little pebbles. But they're actually going to try to stone him to death. All right, is what they're doing here. Now, what did he say in this little passage here, in just these couple of, of verses that we've read, that would cause them to try to stone Jesus to death? And to get the full uh, uh, information here, to get everything, the full picture that we need of what is going on here, hold your spot there and turn with me way, way back to the book of Exodus, if you don't mind. Genesis, Exodus, go to Exodus chapter 3. And this one is not on the screen today, so you'll need to look this one up yourself. Genesis and then Exodus, and we're going to go to Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to study a little bit about what is going on here. Was Jesus claiming just to be very old? Is that what got him mad? That, that he was acting as if, not acting, but saying that he knew Abraham? And that they knew Abraham had died thousands of years ago. Was he claiming just to be old? Is that why they were going to stone him to death? Because you shouldn't claim to be that old? Something else is going on. And many of you already know what that is. But here in Exodus, and we'll come back to John 8 in just a moment, we get a good idea of what is happening. And uh, so let me start off reading. Exodus chapter 3. Great story for children. Uh, we've grown up knowing this story. It's been taught to us over and over. It's great to read again as adults but also to catch something that perhaps you might not have caught before. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to the Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14 is our key verse in this passage for the point we're making here today. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What is going on? All right, we know the story. The, the bush is appearing to be on fire, but yet it is not consumed. Uh, the voice coming from it, we have the voice of God, gets Moses' attention. Moses comes up, his shoes are taken off, he's on holy ground. And then Moses is called out to actually go to the highest, most powerful person in all the earth, it appears at that time, the Pharaoh himself. He's out just being a shepherd, and now he's supposed to go to the Pharaoh himself and say, let all these people go, around a million people. It's what historicists feel that were there in Egypt. He's supposed to say, God told me to do this, but he says, who should I say? And sending me to, to say this to Pharaoh, and the name he gives is I am. Verse 14, tell them, I am has sent me to you. I, space, and then we have this A and this M right here, I am. Now, this name was so reverend, so protected in Israel that they would not even say the name of God in fear that they would break the third commandment of using God's name in vain. Now you turn on TV, now you walk down the hallway of a school, at your workplace, wherever you are, God's name is used all the time, it seems like, in vanity now, in ways not, not in worship, not in professing truths of God. But that was not the way in Israel. His name was reverend. It was, it was worshipped. He was glorified. And they were scared to even say it because they might not say it in an absolute worshipful way. Because you, it was punishable. And if you use God's name in a way that was not worshipful, Leviticus 24, 16 one of the laws there says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So people were not going around using God's name as they are today, flippantly or using it almost in a, as a curse word or something bad when they stump their toe or something bad happens to them. No, it was, his name was protected. It was honored. It was glorified. And there is a rule that was given to Israel at that time that if someone blasphemes the name of God, if they say something inaccurate about God or use his name unworthy, he was to be stoned to death. This was extremely serious. And if you think about it, it's really uh, the most serious crime a person could commit. The very one who has spoken, who has created the world, he has created us, and that this creation is going to speak bad and curse God's name. So as far as the nation of Israel, not today, but as far as the nation of Israel at this time, God gave them this rule to abide by. Uh, Israel was supposed to be a holy nation, separated out from the world to live a different way. They were supposed to represent God in a pure way. So this was the rule. So now we go back to John eight fifty six through 58, and we see this taking place, right? Jesus says... In this 856 through 58, your Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and I have, have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what are the next two words there? I am. It is not just saying, it's odd if you just read it in English and you don't understand quite what's going on here. But what is going on is Jesus is saying, I am. He is saying, I am God. 
I am the one who was speaking in the burning bush to Moses. The name that you reverend, the name that you worship, the name you hold in esteem, I'm taking it on myself right now. I can say that I am God. So this is huge. And they, they, they hate this. What do they do? They pick up stones to stone him to death because he has committed blasphemy. The worst blasphemy imaginable is that he, a creation, is what they're thinking, has claimed to actually be the, the, the creator, God himself. But he is claiming to be God here. So this is, again, what C.S. Lewis would argue, that you have to say that he's either God, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic. Because he claims clearly to be God. He draws from the scriptures that they know so well. They know these scriptures. They are the Pharisees. They study these scriptures. And when he says, I am, they know exactly what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming to be God, the very one who was in the burning bush. Now, let's fast forward a bit. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to catch another time here where Jesus does basically the, the same thing. Jesus, this is toward the end of Jesus' earthly life. He has been arrested, and he is now in the, the area there with Caiaphas in the home. And, and Caiaphas is called in, kind of a kangaroo court, not a real court where there's any foundation, but they're just bouncing all around, uh, trying to throw laws and throw accusations at him, just trying to catch Jesus. Any reason possible, they could, they could kill him. They want to at this time. But in Matthew chapter 26, let's see what happens here. 57 is the verse I'll begin with. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming to the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Again, what gets Caiaphas so angry at this point? Caiaphas actually rips his clothing. He gets everyone mustered up here into a frenzy. They immediately say that he deserves death. They spit in his face. They begin to punch him already, asking him who struck him, if he is the Christ, if he is this powerful, who's hitting you at this time. What is going on? Well, look back at verse 64. Jesus agrees to the statement that Caiaphas just made. Jesus says, you have said so. What is Jesus agreeing, agreeing to? Uh, right back here where, Jesus, where Caiaphas says, are you the Christ? Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He is not Mr. Christ, but that Christ is his title. 
He is the one and only Christ, the one and only Messiah that had been prophesied about from the beginning of the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and building upon that. God would speak to his prophets. They would announce something that the prophet would do or where he would be born or what he would be like, the the Messiah. And, And Jesus comes. He is announced as the Messiah. He is the Christ. So the Caiaphas says, are you the Christ? Are you the one and only one that is coming from God? Jesus says, I am. But also, look at this. He says, are you the son of God? And Jesus agrees with him. Yes, I am the son of God. They immediately want to put him to death. Why? Because if you go way back to Leviticus, he has committed blasphemy in their eyes. They do not agree that he is God. They do not agree that he is Lord. They're going with liar or lunatic. So they immediately try to put him to death. So we see here also that that something interesting happens that builds the anger of Caiaphas. Yes, he says he is the Christ. Yes, he is the Son of God. But look closely at the end here of verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of... It's not God right there. Just earlier... He agreed that he was the Son of God. We got that. He agreed that he is Christ. But here, look what happens. A different title is used. He is the Son of Man. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus talking about in this passage? He's doing something like he just did over here in John chapter 8 that we looked at. He's going back to their scriptures. He's going back to the Old Testament to bring forth a truth, and they know it very well. Look with me in Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 7. Kind of a hard book to find. I do, this, I do have this on the screen for you as well. Uh, but Daniel chapter 7, if you're making notes, just write that in. Here we have a prophet from God. Remember, God uh, chose certain men to speak through that were prophets. They speak for God. They would sometimes have a vision, and they would record these visions and let these visions be known, and they were from God. So God would reveal special revelation to them. That's why in the Old Testament we have the prophets, all right? Daniel being one of them, everything that he saw and witnessed there is recorded for us, and this is one of the visions that he saw. It was a very special, unique vision. Now, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, this is what Daniel says. Pay close attention to this, what we just read over here in Matthew, where Jesus says, But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right? Jesus is letting them know that he is the one mentioned in this vision from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says this. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a... Son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Really interesting. If you've never looked into that, it's, it's a beautiful thing that Jesus does here. He agrees with the statement of Caiaphas. You say, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Christ. You say that I'm the Son of God. Yes, I am the Son of God. But that's not all. Let me tell you this. From now on, you will see me as the Son of Man. In other words, you see me now as a weak human. You're about to beat me up. You're about to spit on me. You're about to take all the flesh off my back and whip and beat and punch and pull my beard out, crown thorns on my head, spikes in my hands, spikes in my feet, strip me, humiliate me in front of everyone. I'm going to die on the cross. But from now, my humiliation, my time of humiliation is almost over. And from now on, you will see me as the Son of Man. And in Daniel's vision here, we have this beautiful picture of one. And, And Daniel... And seeing this, and he's describing it, but he says there's this one like a son of man. I mean, this is bizarre. That's coming before the ancient of days, God the Father. Man cannot be in the presence of God. But what's going on here is that, that we have the one, the one who is Jesus, who is God the Son, who put on flesh, who ascends back into heaven. And now Daniel is saying this one like a son of man. Jesus maintains his body. He, he has the body of man now coming back into heaven before the Ancient of Days. And he receives all power, the right hand of power. He, is, he receives all worship. His dominion is one that is everlasting and will not pass away and will not be destroyed. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. So this infuriates them. Yes, he agrees to Caiaphas. I am the Christ. God's one and only Savior. I am the Son of God. But also, let me just let you know, I am also the Son of Man. And one day I will receive all worship. I will have a dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And I'm coming on the clouds of heaven. And oh, this infuriates him. Why? Because he is claiming more and more and more to be God. Uh, One last passage that we want to look at today. Matthew chapter 16. Turn with me over there. Is Jesus really God? Today we're establishing the fact, Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus obviously claims to be God. In fact, it leads to why he was murdered, because he was claiming to be God. They despised that he was claiming to be God and wanted to shut him up so he would stop claiming this. People were beginning to follow him. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17. Here we have... Once again, not the enemies of Jesus, but someone else who is going to be asked who Jesus is and try to figure out who Jesus is, and it's his close disciples. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, there's a big clue that you should have picked up on, that they should have picked on up as well there, that you should have picked up on, that who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus has basically given them the answer to the question that he has just given them. Who do people say, speaking of himself, that the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man, we just covered, coming from the book of Daniel. And by the way, this is Jesus' most self-proclaimed title of himself. Other people refer to him as, a, as the Christ or as the Messiah, uh, but he most refers to himself as the Son of Man. He's constantly leaving this clue out there, and they should know this. But they say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so they, other people are giving him some pretty high, high accolades here. That maybe, maybe Jesus is Elijah. I mean, Elijah was an extremely powerful prophet. Uh, chariots of fire scooped him up, took him back to heaven, and now maybe Elijah's return. This is a big honor. So that's pretty high. They're really esteeming Jesus, all right? People say that you might even be Elijah. Others say that you might even be Jeremiah. Another major prophet in the Old Testament. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Or uh, John the Baptist maybe has somehow come back from the dead. And that, that you're John the Baptist. They just didn't really know. But they knew he was somebody very, very special. Someone sent from God. And next they say, or one of the prophets. So this is huge. Uh, a prophet is, again, someone that was speaking from God. So they, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And they give him all these very high names, high accolades. You're maybe Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, one that speaks from God. Um, and this is, this is kind of what we're seeing today even. If we ask people who Jesus is, some will put him kind of high, a good teacher, a good man, a, a, maybe a prophet from God. But is that high enough? Is that the right answer? Let's look and see. Uh, oh, let me, let me say, do people, why do people... Uh, who do people say that Jesus is today? And uh, so we get various answers, kind of like the disciples were giving to Jesus at that time. Uh, can you create your own definition of who Jesus is and still be okay? Absolutely not. By creating your own Jesus, you deny who Jesus really is. You create an antichrist. I'm going to read that one more time. Uh, can you create your own definition of who Jesus is and still be okay? No, by creating your own Jesus, you deny who Jesus really is, and you create an antichrist. This is huge. In today's time, where we are so jesus Everyone knows Jesus, thinks they know Jesus. You're born in America, you're a Christian, right? Uh, You eat apple pie, you're a Christian. You know who Jesus is. It's just this weird thing of everybody knows who Jesus is, but... You, we studied this a while back. They might say the same word. They might say the same name. They might even spell it the same, J-E-S-U-S. But if you change the definition that goes to that word, you no longer have the same person. If you remove that Jesus is God and he claims over and over to be God and keep the rest of Jesus, he's a good man, he's a prophet. Uh, can that Jesus save you? Absolutely not. You've just changed the definition in such a way that you've created an antichrist, a non-Christ, someone who has not the power to save, someone that cannot forgive you of your sins. You've removed a vital part of who he is. So you create a different Jesus. So we have to make sure that the Jesus that we believe in for our salvation is the Jesus of the Bible. So these people who said, yeah, we believe Jesus is real. We see him all the time. He's performing miracles. He's, he's feeding people. He's healing people. He's definitely some kind of high prophet. Is that enough? That's not enough. So we go on here. Um, in verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? People will always have opinions, but that really doesn't mean a thing. What it comes down to is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who does Jesus say that he is? It's not a popularity poll. We don't go around the country and vote on this. But who does Jesus claim to be? Who do you say that Jesus is? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me read that one more time. 
Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It just doesn't get any clearer than this. Simon Peter says, Yeah, yeah, some people say this. Some people say John, some say a lot, some say, but then Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? He makes it personal. And Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to this? In verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father who is in heaven. And not only does Peter answer correctly, but this correct answer has been revealed to him by God the Father. Jesus claims to be God over and over and over and over. Here, Jesus knows there's many opinions of who people says, say he is, just as there are now, but there's only one right answer. We can't make up our own definition of who Jesus is and uh, expect that Jesus to save us. We must believe in the real Jesus. So, is Jesus a man? Yes, he is man. Is Jesus God? Yes, he is God. He is the God-man. He is the eternal God, God the Son, who in, puts on flesh, we call that the incarnation, and becomes Jesus the Christ. And this is who Jesus is. So is Christianity too narrow? Absolutely not. It is the size of our Savior. There is only one Savior that will be sent by God. It is only God here, Jesus, that comes to earth to save us. And to reject this Jesus is to try to get to the God who created us, the God whom we've sinned against some other way than the one that he has sent, which is God himself to us to forgive us of our sins. Jesus indeed is really God. So we go back to what we started with here. Either Jesus was right in his claim that he is God, or we, the world, would have to say that he is, was wrong. And if he is wrong, then once again we end up that he was a liar or that he is a lunatic. So that's where we, we're at today. When people say, do you really believe Jesus is God? Uh, I just think he's a good man. Then we have to point to scriptures like we looked at here today. Well, he indeed was a good man. He was actually a perfect man. Some people say that he was a prophet. He was a prophet. He spoke from God. But is that high enough? No, that's not enough. We need the Jesus who is God who could represent us to God because he was God, who could pay for all the sins of the world, whoever believes in him and trusts in him, who was that powerful. We need that one, the God-man, the only one who can go between us and God the Father to pay for our sins, and this is who Jesus claims to be. He is indeed God. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, for our sins to die on the cross that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be rescued, that we could be saved. It stand, we, we stand amazed, astonished, not that there is only one way to heaven, but that there is a way to heaven. We've sinned against you. We do not deserve any mercy. We don't deserve grace. There's nothing we can do to earn your favor. But yet, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, you've chosen to give us mercy anyway. You've given grace anyway in the form of sending your eternal Son. Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus did claim to be God. And we thank you that we have the word that we can look at, to see, to read as we have today. That we can see how what has been said in the past lines up with what Jesus said as well. 
and that Jesus is indeed the great I am. The very creator of us is the very one that the creation killed on the cross that day. But he rose from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave, that all who believe in him shall be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship, please.